I'll be reading Romans 5:12 through 19. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So now, Father, we want to leap into this ocean of grace and be soaked by it and healed by it and emboldened by it and freed from fear by it and humbled by it. We want there to well up within our hearts strong confidence in our acceptance with you on the basis of the righteousness of Christ and not our own righteousness. And so I ask for your help to unfold some of these verses. Would you draw near and give an ear to hear to all of us? Would you show yourself great and your grace greater than all our sins. And would those who've come in among us, O God, who are not born of God and do not trust Jesus Christ and cling to Him for righteousness, be changed, be made alive, and be brought to faith and given life so let there go out from us, Lord, great waves of truth and love this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It might be helpful to connect this text with uh, yesterday's newspaper as we begin. Killing and, and dying are common in the world and in our city. Way too common, aren't they? Sometimes murder multiplies so fast it takes your breath away and you wonder what kind of a 
city we live in. That's what happened to me as I looked at the metro section yesterday. First, there was the ongoing saga of Katie Poyer's murder. And then there was the 24-year-old Kinsey Otto, who perhaps has been murdered in relation to the drug ecstasy. Then there was the 17-year-old Steve Temple, who was killed Wednesday in Lakeville. Three men being held. And then there was the sentencing of Ezekiel Caliguiri. And then there was the unnamed man, Friday, who died after he got pushed off the bus downtown here earlier this week. And then there was Kimberly Harmon, who was stabbed to death Wednesday morning. And those are the ones that make the newspaper. Two pages in one day. And what these tragic real-life situations in our city reveal to us is that there's sin in the world and there's death in the world. There's sin. Murder is the, the outworking of sin in the heart. Some kill, some die. So there's sin and there's death. One kills, another dies. Stares you in the face day after day from the newspaper, from the television. And it caused me to think of a proverb that I had been struck by during vacation. Um, Namely Proverbs 120. It goes like this. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. What do you think that means? Wisdom shouts in the streets of Minneapolis. Wisdom lifts her voice on Nicollet Avenue in Lakeville. What does that mean? How does wisdom shout on the streets? What does it say? Wisdom says, Number your days, O people in Minneapolis. Get a heart of wisdom. You're going to die. It's going to be unplanned. It will come unexpectedly. Young or old. 17 or 77. It's going to come. Get a heart of wisdom, citizens of this city. That's what wisdom is crying in the streets. You're going to die. There's death. Think about it. Or, wisdom says, turn away from hate, city. Turn away from bitterness. Turn away from greed and killing. Turn away from sin and fear God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Trust me, follow my teachings. Don't be a fool any longer. Get wisdom, depart from sin, fear God. That's what wisdom is crying in the streets of Minneapolis. How? How does wisdom say that in the streets? 
Just listen. Just listen. Just read the paper. Just watch the news. And think. Don't be passive when you watch the news. Think. Ask questions about the meaning of these things. This is wisdom crying in the streets. Follow it up. Trace, trace it out. Follow greed. You see greed in the news? Trace it up to its end and get a heart of wisdom. You see addiction? Trace it out to its end and get a mind of wisdom. Listen to the voice of wisdom crying in the street. Peer into the ashen faces of dead teenagers and trace it to the end all the way up to heaven or down to hell and get a heart of wisdom they're the one place or the other think get wise as you watch the news wisdom is crying in the streets when these people die don't let them die in vain Wisdom is crying in the streets from every court proceeding being spoken about in the newspaper or on the television. Think it out to its end and get a heart of wisdom. Oh, the passivity in our culture. The passivity in the Christian church. We're just vegetables. We just sit there and soak and let it shape us. And we don't think it out. We don't go in. We don't listen. We don't even tune in and say, God, what does this mean? It's all about wisdom. So what's the connection with the text? If Paul asked that question, he would answer it in the next phrase, much in every way. (laughs) And so I, I only have two to mention out of the many. When a person kills... And according to Romans 1.32, everybody who kills knows they have committed sin and are guilty before God. That's no big surprise. When a person kills, and in the depth of his heart, whether he's ever caught, there may be murderers in this room who've never been caught. There was a woman who showed up here about 18 years ago. Demon-possessed, probably. It was a deliverance that happened. She confessed to me how many men she'd killed. Now, she may have been lying, but she had been involved in some incredible stuff. So it wouldn't surprise me if in a room this size, there are people who've killed people in this room, and you never have been caught, and you are terrified. The fact that I'm even saying this is so scary to you, you can hardly sit there. When that happens, what are you to do with the damning conscience that will not be silenced? Is there a way? Is there a way for killers, thieves, covetous, blasphemers, adulterers, fornicators to have their consciences cleaned? To be put right with God 
even if they have to go to jail for the rest of their lives, rejoice that God loves them, God accepts them, God's going to give them eternal life. Is such a thing possible? That's what this text is about. This text is about killers. You, to hate is to kill. This text is about killers who can get right with God on the basis of the righteousness of another and not their own. Or here's the second connection. Killers kill people and they die. Death. 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 Is it the end? Do you just die and then there's dust and that's it? Like a twig or a leaf. Watch the leaves come down in a few weeks, probably. There's one tree across the street from our house. It always beats every other tree. It's just bare before the others begin to turn. And so it just gets an advance run on rot. They just rot and they go down the... I, I have to go out with the end of a broom and clear away the drain holes in the street so that when the rains come, it won't flood. And I watch them go down. Where do these things go? Where do these leaves go? They just rot and they turn into little teeny pieces, go in the Mississippi River somewhere and, and wind up as a molecule in the Gulf. Then that's it for a leaf. Is that it for you? A lot of people believe that. Millions of people believe that. Is that true? Or is there a reckoning? And if there's a reckoning with the maker and judge of us all, will we be condemned or will we have life? If you are murdered tonight, if you're murdered tonight, Will you be alive and happy with Jesus tomorrow morning? That's what this text is about. This text is about killers and killed. Those who put to death and those who die, which means it's about everybody in this room double over. This isn't, this isn't the street. This pulpit isn't the street. But this text is the voice of wisdom. And it is shouting for us all to hear. Come, it says. Come, all you killers. Come, all you thieves. Come, all you liars, you adulterers, you fornicators, you blasphemers. Come on. Come and listen to the voice of wisdom from the word of God. That's what this text is crying. Because there is news here that is so spectacularly Good for your conscience this morning that it cannot get better. It can't get any better. So, it's been six Sundays now. Six Sundays since I left off at verse 17. What shall we do? You've forgotten everything I said about these first three messages on this text. And so, a little bit of summary might be in order, but not much. We're going to only deal with verses 18 and 19 today, and that briefly, because I'm going to come back to them again next week and talk about the weighty, heavy doctrine of original sin, but I don't want to spend a lot of time there today. I want to see it as a backdrop for the gospel, which it is. That's the main point. So what's the main point of this unit that Keith read from 19 to 19, really to the end of the chapter? 
The main point of this passage that Keith read is that what Christ has done for us, for those who are in him, is greater than what Adam did for those who were in him. That'd be one way to put it. The disobedience of Adam brought all those who are in him, all humanity who were in him, into condemnation. And the obedience of Christ brings all those who are in him into justification of life. That's the main point of the passage. There's a comparison. For five chapters now, Paul has been trying in the book of Romans to make a clear and compelling case for the truth that sinners, and I don't care how bad it's been in your life, that sinners are put right with God not on the basis of the obedience they perform, but on the basis of the obedience Christ performs. That's what he's been trying to make plain. And this chapter, 12 to 21, makes it perhaps clearer than anywhere else that that's what he's about. And the fact that he takes Adam in hand to make it clear is very, very troublesome to us. It brings in this this doctrine of original sin. Why does God save us the way he saves us? With a substitutionary righteousness. Somebody else's obedience is counted to us. Why does he do it that way? And the answer of this text is because that's the way we were condemned in Adam. There's a correspondence, there's a parallel that's being developed in these verses. As Adam fell and sinned and did unrighteous act, and we in him participated in that, and it was credited to us and imputed to us, and we fell and we are condemned in him. So it isn't our righteous acts that gets us right with God. It is the righteous act of another being imputed to us that makes us right with God, which means that if you are an absolutely murderous, adulterous, thieving, lying wretch, in this room, you can be saved. That's the point of this text. Because even though we're tempted to spend all of our time here saying, yikes, how can this original sin thing be fair? Which is what I want to talk about next Sunday. But not this Sunday. That's not the point of the text. So don't miss the glory of how he performs justification by bringing your little brain to condemn the way he did condemnation. We're so prone to get into this thing and say, how can it be fair to be condemned in Adam and miss the whole point of the text, which is there is a glorious deliverance from what we all know by our own conscience, namely that we don't just do sin, we are sinners. Oh, I've tasted it on vacation. I'm a sinner. There'd be times when I've said something to Noel. How stupid why I say that? Okay. Gotta fix this. I'm the head of this house. 
got to take responsibility here. So I'm standing in my bedroom. She's in the kitchen. You know how hard that is for me? I stand there saying, why isn't this easy? I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor. And it is so hard. I hate myself at that point. Why is this so hard for me to apologize? Why do thoughts about what she should do come to mind at this point? This horrendous self-justification. Well, who cares what she should do? I know what I should do. Why is why can't why doesn't this just flow? Answer: wickedness, fallenness. We are sinners, not just do sin. I'll talk more about that next week. The point is now, having become like that, however we got like that. Our deliverance is not by performing enough things to overcome that. Our deliverance is in the performances of another who never, ever, 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 ever sinned and absolutely was perfect for us. Jesus Christ, the righteous. So the the reason for Romans 5 is that there is a deep cause of how we get To be sinners, which shakes us up when he talks about Adam. And there's a deep cause for how we get to be accepted and loved and justified. And it isn't our righteousness, it's his righteousness. That's the point of the text. So let's look at two verses. Verses 18 and 19. I've said it, we'll read it. So then, I think that means, here's the summary. Here's the summary. I'm picking up where I started in verse 12. I'm going to finish it. Here's the summary. As through one transgression. Are you with me in verse 18? As through one transgression. Now that's Adam's sin. There resulted condemnation to all. Even so, in a similar way. Here's the correspondence. Through one act of righteousness, namely Christ's. There resulted justification of life to all men. We'll come back to who that all is and whether that means nobody goes to hell or not. Sounds kind of like it. But is that what it means? Verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience, that's Adam again, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, that's Christ, the many will be made righteous. So there's no doubt what the main point is here. It's not merely to teach a doctrine of original sin. That's the backdrop of the point. And I think the reason that God is willing to push the limits of our human reason with the doctrine of original sin is because we are so prone as human beings To believe that if I've killed somebody, if I've lied and lied and lied and lied to cover up my thievery or my fornication or my homosexual tendencies or my whatever, if I'm just a... Our proneness is, 
well, I would have to somehow really get good and be good for about 10,000 years to make up for this. And so there is no hope for me. And once you have convinced yourself there's no hope, you just sin to beat the band and nothing makes any sense anymore. Let us eat, drink and be merry. Let's just flick on the television. Let's just drink and smoke and party and steal and lie because it's all absurdity. If there is a heaven, I can't get there. If there is a heaven, hell, I'm going to burn there anyway. And so it doesn't make a bit of difference. And the gospel is designed to free you from that despair. Most sin in the world after the awakening of conscience comes from despair at ever being good enough. And the, the gospel is, Christ, Christ was good enough. Christ was good enough. And the issue of being saved is to rest in him. Oh, let's take that message to this despairing, sin-sick, City. Verse 18. So then, as one, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted in justification of life to all men. The main point is clear, isn't it? These two verses, I think, are the clearest verses in the paragraph. If you're connected to Adam, you're condemned. If you're connected to Christ, you're justified. Accepted, loved, acquitted, righteous before God. Think with me about this phrase, one act of righteousness. What is that? See that phrase in verse 18? Even so through one act of righteousness. Hmm. Is that referring to one act Christ did? Or is that referring to his whole life as a collective of righteousness, I wonder. If you try to make the first one work, one act of righteousness, what would you pick? What act would you pick? And I guess the reading I've done, the one most people would pick is, is death. The one act of righteousness, he died for us. But think about that for a minute. If you say, this is a reference to the death of Christ, what part of the death of Christ? What, what act of obedience in dying are you picking? Gethsemane and the obedience of the tears and the weeping? When the mob took him away and he obeyed and went, is that the part you're picking? Or are you picking the interrogation of Pilate and Herod and his beautiful silence and truth-telling? 
Or are you picking the flogging and how he didn't return evil for evil? Are you picking the moment of the, the thorns being pushed into his skull? Is that the obedience you're picking? Or are you picking the obedience when he let the nails be put through his hands and he didn't pull them off and hit the soldier in the face or bring down angels from heaven? Is that the point of obedience? Or is it when, the, when he spoke truth and love to the thief or to his mother or to John and he, and he blessed his enemies. Is that the obedience? What, which is it? You see, it won't work to say death any more than it will work to say life. My conclusion is that it does mean his whole life as a collective act. Of obedience, And I'll give you a couple of reasons why I think that, besides the fact that saying his death is just another way of saying a collective group of acts of obedience. One is because any act of unrighteousness would have disqualified him, whether he was 12, 20, 30, 32, or 33. And any act of unrighteousness would have disqualified him from being our righteousness. Second is because at his baptism, Matthew 3.15, Jesus says, in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And I thought, that's interesting. It doesn't say fulfill all acts of righteousness. It doesn't itemize them. It simply says, in this way, it is fitting that we fulfill all righteousness. So this is part of it. My preaching and teaching are going to be part of it. My humble submission to torture is going to be part of it. My incarnation was part of it. And a third reason that I can only appeal to the Greek readers among you is that dikaioma means just requirement. And it's not hard to picture a life lived in obedience to God as the just requirement of the Redeemer. This is the dikaioma. This is the just requirement of the substitutionary righteous one. You must obey always. So when it says one act of righteousness, I doubt that Paul has in mind one particular momentary act, but rather a collective act stretching over Jesus' whole life. And it resulted in justification of life for us all. Verse 19. For as through one man's disobedience... The many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Now, the difference here between the two verses is that obedience is used instead of the word righteous act to describe what Jesus did. The obedience of the one man will make many righteous. And the reason that's important is because it shows us that the righteousness in view, in verse 18, is compliance with the will of God. There's no fancy view of righteousness. 
This righteous act means he complied with what is right. Namely, what God says to do is right. And he complied with it. He obeyed. That's what his righteousness is for us. Christ complied with the Father's will. He always did the Father's will. So, here's the point, the positive point against the backdrop of original sin. Namely, our justification, our being put right with God is not based on our performances of righteous acts, but on Christ's perfect performance of righteous acts. And just as somehow, in a mysterious way that is beyond human reason, the sin of Adam is counted to our account, and we fall and become condemned in him, even so the obedience and the righteousness of Christ is credited to our account, though it is alien from us and we didn't perform it, he performed it. And it is credited to us, or to use the words of Paul earlier in this letter, we are reckoned righteous. Reckoned righteous. Now I conclude with this thought. Who are the we that I've been talking about? Or who are the all of verse 18? In verse 19, it is the many, you see that? The many who are made righteous. Who are those many? You should be asking right now as we come to the end of this message, whatever your situation is, am I included? Am I included in the many who are made righteous with the righteousness of Jesus? Ask that now. Don't, don't blow this message off as information. God is speaking the gospel of his son to your eternal destiny here. Everything hangs on, are you included in the many of verse 19 and the all of verse 18? Are you included? That's where I'm closing. Verse 18. Through, at the end of the verse, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Does that mean every human being who was in Adam, namely every human being, period, will be justified, no one will be lost, and there will be no eternal punishment and no hell, and everybody will be saved. That's called universalism. Is that true? Is that biblical? A lot of people would go to a verse like this and say, see, right there, it says, it says all men, just as many as were in Adam and condemned, just as many in Christ justified. Equal, therefore, universalism. There is another way to see this. 
namely that all who are in Adam are condemned in Adam and all who are in Christ are justified in Christ. And the two alls are really all of two humanities, one with Adam at the head and one with Christ at the head. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. And the question is, are all in Christ? What does the Bible teach about how you get grafted to Christ? How you are in Christ? Let me give you two or three reasons for why I don't think verse 18 is teaching universalism. Number one, verse 17 waves a banner of caution loud and clear. We saw it six weeks ago. It talks as though there is a receiving of righteousness and grace, which some do and some don't. Let's read verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more, now watch these words, much more, those who receive, who receive, who receive the abundance of grace, And the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. I think that verse points us toward a division of the humanity in Adam into one that receives the life and the grace and the righteousness that's in Christ and a group that does not receive it. And these are those who are in Christ. And all of them are justified. That's argument number one. Here's argument number two. In this letter and elsewhere, Paul simply plainly teaches that there's eternal hell. For somebody. For example, chapter 2, verse 5. He says... Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And then, in verse 7 and 8, he contrasts this stored up wrath with eternal life, which means it's eternal wrath. It's not wrath that lasts 500 years and then burns the hell out of you and you go to heaven after that. That's what a lot of people believe these days. That, yeah, there's a hell and it's just a glorified purgatory because it's designed to purify people who in this life didn't repent. And after 100 years or two, 300 years, you'll get the idea and you'll repent. And then you'll go to heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches Because this wrath that's being talked about in chapter 2, verse 5, is contrasted in verse 7 and 8 with eternal life. There's eternal life and there's wrath. Argument number 3 for why verse 18 and the all there refers to all who are in Christ rather than all humans. Absolutely. Everywhere up till now in Romans... Justification has been taught to be by faith. 
by faith. Not automatic, because you're a human. For example, Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Or Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. Paul's whole life and ministry is devoted to taking the gospel that if believed will justify to the unreached because he believes that they're lost without it. And so please, please don't deceive yourself. Don't read verse 18 and say, oh, I'm home free then. Don't have to believe, don't have to trust, don't have to lean on Jesus. Don't do that. So let me close with a a plea. What's the message of this text? Here's the message. Come, killers. Come, thieves. Come, liars. Come, adulterers. Come, fornicators. Last night, maybe. And you're here because God loves you and wants you to believe this message and put it in my mouth so that last night's fornication can be wiped clean and you can be accepted with God. Come, blasphemers. Come indifferent, come greedy, come covetousness, come worldly, come secular ignorers of God. Come and know this, to be put right with God, which is what must happen if you're to have eternal life. To be put right with God, you can't perform enough righteous deeds to make it good. You must then turn away from yourself And depend like a little child on what Christ has provided for you. Namely, a perfect righteousness wrought out in his life, climaxing in his atoning death. So that you trust, lean upon, bank on, hope in all that God is for you in him. Not what you are for him or could ever do for him. So I pray that you would believe that. I urge you to believe it. And then, if you do that, no matter whom you have killed, or from whom you have stolen, or to whom you have lied, or with whom you have lain, you will be able to approach your judge and maker unafraid. I'm going to be here at the front. Other elders, prayer team members will be here. If you want to pray about any of your struggles or confess any sin that you need to confess, we would really be happy to pray with you and just minister the mercy of God in your life. And now may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.